The teaching for this evening is going to be from Genesis chapter 3, and we'll look at verses 1 to 24. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. He said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree, and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? And the woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain and childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. And to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife, and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring up forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread, till you return to the ground. For out of it you are taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. The man called his wife's name Eve, because she was the mother of all living. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now, lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him out of the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man... And at the east of the Garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. We are in the midst of a uh, a series here on Genesis. We're especially Genesis 1 through 11, and then we'll take a little bit of a break and, and look at the early chapters in the book of Romans. But this morning, we're going to We're going to look at the passage that Matt just read from Genesis chapter 3, and and my guess is uh, if you've been around uh, Christianity even the slightest bit, uh, this is a story you've heard something about, the story of 
um, the Garden of Eden, where Adam and Eve sin against God and everything falls apart. And as we look at Genesis, uh, just to remind you, this is the first of the five books of Moses. Uh, It is uh, generally believed that Moses is the primary author of these books. And because he, he is the primary author, we can also, in general, conclude that these books were written to God's people on their way to the promised land. After having been in slavery in Egypt for over 400 years, these are God's words through Moses to his people to remind them who they really are, what he is up to, and where they're headed. And so last week, a couple weeks ago, we looked at Genesis chapter 1 at the uh, God's week of creation where he made everything out of nothing by speaking. And last week, we looked at Genesis chapter 2, and one of the the points I tried to make from Genesis chapter 2 in relation to chapter 1 is that Genesis chapter 2 is looking at day 6 of God's creation week, the, the day that he created man, male and female, in his own image. And getting into more of the specifics of how he did that. And, in, and, in, and what we talked about was God's original design. What was God's original design and intention for human flourishing? And the question that we come to when we come to uh, Genesis chapter 3, and even when we come to this passage uh, in light of our own experience compared to chapter 1 and 2 is, all right, the experience that we read about in chapters 1 and 2 is radically different than what we see in chapter 3 and every chapter thereafter. And why is that the case? Why is our experience so different than the flourishing and the goodness and the beauty and the harmony and the fellowship and the intimacy and the freedom of Genesis chapter 2? Another way to look at this, this question might be to ask yourself a very personal question. What would you say is the greatest problem facing you in your life today? Or to step back from that and and take a really big picture look, what would would you say is the greatest problem facing our world today? And I would tell you that the answer to all of those questions are here in this chapter. And so what I want to do is look at what is our experience as seen through the lens of this chapter? And then... After looking at our experience, I want to look at where does that experience begin? And then we'll finish on what can actually transform or how can our experience in this world be transformed from what it is right now. So first, let's look at what is our experience as it is described from this chapter. Hopefully, have your worship folder handy or your Bible handy because I'm going to Uh, point out a series of of passages here and try to show you what is the experience that the man and the woman, the husband and wife, or as we know from uh, this chapter, Adam and Eve, what is their experience? Well, first of all, look in verse um, 7. It says here that in light of what goes on in this, this event, their eyes were opened and they knew that they were naked. Now, 
if you, if you have chapter 2 or a Bible in front of you and you look at the very last verse of chapter 2, it ends with God saying that the man and woman were together, that they were naked and they were unashamed. But now their eyes are opened and they know they are naked. And what do they do? They try to cover that. They sew fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. So the very first thing we see here about the experience that we all experience is a sense of shame, of exposure, of being seen and not wanting to be seen. And therefore, having to try and hide and cover ourselves. We hide from one another. But not only do we hide from one another, look in verse 8. They heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of God. So there's hiding from one another. But there's also a hiding from God. We try to cover ourselves and present ourselves in a different light to one another, but also from God himself. And what is that vulnerability, that exposure, that nakedness, that shame result in? Well, look down to verse 16. This is after Adam and Eve have eaten of this tree that God said not to eat. God pronounces judgment on the serpent, whom we'll talk about in a moment, and on the woman and the man. And he says, I will surely multiply your pain and childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. What we see here is, in this pronouncement, there is relational conflict and power struggle. Here, when God says, your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. Uh, That actually is echoed in chapter 4. The idea here in that verse is simply this, that the relationship that we read about in chapter 2, that was perfect and intimate and beautiful, is now shot through with struggle and conflict, power brokering, manipulation, conniving. The relationship that was most supposed to reflect God's relationship to his people is now broken and is characterized by this battle. Who will get their way? Who will give in? Who won't give in? But not only is it relational conflict horizontally, it's also vertical Notice in verses 22 to 24, God sends Adam and Eve out of this garden, this garden that was their home, their place to flourish and to know who they really were and carry out their calling as God's image bears. God removes them. He expels them. There's alienation. So our experience is nakedness and shame and hiding results in a horizontal and vertical breakdown of every relationship. Now, what does this look like in more detail? Look in verse 12 and 13. What happens? The man said to the woman, 
The, the woman whom the man said in speaking to God, the woman who you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit. It's her fault. Then the God, God says to the woman, what's this you've done? And the woman says, well, the serpent deceived me. The serpent made me do it. This is blame shifting. Now, just pause and think about this. I know this story of this passage can feel really removed from us, both in time and in culture. But the reason I'm taking time for us to look at our our experience through the lens of this passage is, I think when we do that, we realize, wow, this this is very close to home. Who of us here has not been in a situation where our instinctive response has been, that is not my problem. You are the problem. If you would only listen to me, if you'd only take the time to understand me, if you weren't so demanding, if you could just be more patient, then I wouldn't be having such a hard time. Blame shifting. This is... This is at the root, I would say, of just about every response that we have. It is our resolute, abiding sense that the problem is not me, but someone else. And the degree to which you believe that and you live by that, however much you might say you don't believe that, is the degree to which you will not understand. You will not experience the good news that the scriptures bring. Blame shifting. But also, we experience pain and suffering. Again, mentioned here in verse 16 and 17, for both the woman and the man, in childbearing, in working, what was to be a flourishing, harmonious life of being fruitful and multiplying, of subduing the earth, having dominion over it is now one shot through with anguish and toil, a sense of futility, of meanlessness, of even hopelessness, of physical breakdown, of pain, of relational breakdown. What was supposed to be a beautiful calling is now fraught with pain. So that's our experience as it's described here in chapter 3. But the question is, where does that begin How did that become our experience as human beings, as men and women, as boys and girls created in God's image? Well, look in verse 1. A new character comes into uh, the story at this point. The serpent, who's more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. This is the first that we hear of this, this character, the serpent. And the serpent here is described as crafty, that is, incredibly subtle, very shrewd, very conniving, deceiving, manipulative. And in this case, this, this figure, this character, the serpent, uh, doesn't really have a name, but we know from the rest of Scripture that the serpent is also uh, described as Satan or the devil, whom we read about when, when we read from Matthew chapter uh, 3 earlier, or 4, 
in Jesus' temptation. Here, Satan, through this serpent, this beast of the field, he works his dark, sinister power into God's good creation. And what's the backdrop for this whole chapter? The backdrop for this whole chapter is really verses 16 and 17 from chapter 2, when God says to the man, the Lord God commanded the man, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. That's the backdrop. And the very first place where this experience begins for us is with this question. Did God really say? Did God actually say? It's a direct attack attack on God's word. And notice how here the serpent completely misrepresents God. Did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? That is a total misrepresentation. Because what did God say? You may eat of any tree in the garden. It's there for you to look at because it's beautiful. It's there for you to eat because it's nourishing. You may eat of every tree of the garden. I have provided you with everything that you need. Everything that you could want. And what I am commanding you to do is not eat of this one tree. And here the serpent flips it around and says, did God actually say you cannot eat of any tree in the garden? Now what does this question do? Well, it does two things. Here the serpent questions God's trustworthiness. He calls into questions God's motives. He actually presents God as selfish and withholding. Look at verse 5. God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. You see, the way deception works, the way Satan works, is to make you think that God is holding out on you. That he actually hasn't provided everything you need. He impugns God's motives. He calls them into question. He makes God out to be stingy. But not only that, he he calls into question God's truthfulness. Notice verse 4. The serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. Implying, when God told you earlier that if you eat of that tree, you will die, that's not true. You won't die. You'll actually become more like God if you do this. He just doesn't want you to become like that. He's power hungry. He doesn't want to share it with you. That's what the serpent is here doing. He is calling into question God's trustworthiness and his truthfulness. Or another way to think of it, can you trust him and is he good? And see, the serpent here, his subtle insinuations really fly in the face of chapter 2, verse 9, when God says, I give you every tree. Every tree in this garden is good to look at and to eat. There's the tree of life and there's the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. 
The way the serpent presents it is, no, no, no. The only thing that you need, the one thing that you need is the one thing that God has said you can't have. And if you really want to flourish, if you really want to be truly human, you need to eat the fruit of that tree. And it's very interesting here, the woman's response. Uh, it's clear here that Adam, her husband, has informed her of what God told her. Because her response is virtually verbatim of what God tells Adam in chapter 2. With one small variation. Where she says at the end, neither shall you touch it. Which, at least what we have here, God didn't say that. And what are we supposed to make of that? Is that an innocent in, in inclusion or, or something else? And the text doesn't really tell us. But one of the things we can, I think, infer from this is it does go beyond what God said in verses 16 and 17 of chapter 2. And it even introduces an idea of God as unreasonably strict. It's not just enough, just don't eat of this Don't even touch it. God is unreasonably strict. Her response here is somewhat mysterious, and and it's not quite clear what what is being said when when she says that. But what I also want you to notice here is it would be easy to kind of look at this story and think, man, this is all on Eve. She totally blew it. And she did. But what I also want you to see here is notice In verse 6, towards the end, after the serpent does his work and, and the woman takes the fruit and eats it, it says she also gave some to her husband, listen, who was with her. Who was with her. And I think the way in which that little detail enters into this story is intended to make us go, where has Adam been? What has he been doing? Why didn't he intervene and say, wait, my bride, don't you remember what God said to us? We have this home. He's made us for himself. This is a lie. We have everything we need. We have one another in perfect fellowship and communion. We have God We walk with him in his presence. This is a total lie. But that's not, he's silent. He says nothing. He doesn't come with the good news of God's word, speaking what he has been told, promises of life. And he just takes this fruit and he eats. His passivity indicts him every bit as much as Eve's activity indicts her. This is a mutual falling, and in fact, Adam fails his bride. He fails her. So this is our experience. It it begins with this suggestion. God can't be trusted. God isn't good. My guess is, Every single one of us in here thinks of that in one shape or or another every day. 
Is God really good? Can I trust him? Is he holding out on me? Why is my life so hard? If only God would give me, and you fill in the blank. And the really deceptive part of this passage, of the serpent's work, is he leads us to think that the only way out of that problem, can God be trusted? Is he really good? Is to live independently of him, not to move toward him. The only way out is to build our lives on our own insight, on our own vision for what life could be and should be. That's the real danger here. That is the real subtlety and deception of sin, according to the Bible. It's not just breaking the rules, though it is that. It's actually believing that you and I, if given the chance, have a better idea of how things ought to go and who we really are and what it means to flourish as human beings. That is the great lie that we all believe and spend so much time and energy trying to fulfill. And this is where it brings us. And so the question I want to ask you is, when you find yourself perhaps asking the question, did God really say What I want you to ask yourself is, who is asking that question? Who is asking you that question? And then secondly, where will you turn to answer that question? There are only two options. You will either turn to your own answers to that question, or you will turn to the living God for the answer to that question. Those are the only two options. One leads to life, the other one leads to death. So that's where our experience begins. But how can our experience be transformed? Notice here in verse 20 and 21, these two verses, um, maybe this didn't stand out to you, but the more you read this passage, verses 20 to 21 seem a little bit out of place. And what I want you to see here, the reason that they're here. At this point, right after God pronounces judgment on the serpent and on the woman and on the man, is what, we're, what we discover here is that our story begins with this story. Right here, verse 20, the man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. In Acts chapter 17, verse 26, the apostle Paul, when he's in Athens, and he's in the, uh, basically the shopping mall talking with the Athenians. He says, God made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth. Our story begins here. And in another way, the Apostle Paul, again in Romans chapter 5, he says, sin came into the world through one man and death through sin. And so death spread to all men. Because all sinned. How can our experience be transformed? Well, you have to understand that this is your story. This is where your story begins. Because Eve was the mother of all living. We are connected 
to Adam and Eve and this story and its tragic outcome. But not only that, look in verse 21, we also need what they needed. And the Lord God made for Adam and and for his wife garments of skin and clothed them. Now, do you remember, what did Adam and Eve do when they ate of the fruit and became aware of their shame and nakedness? They sewed fig leaves. They tried to cover themselves. You see, this verse here, verse 21, is really where the good news begins to enter into this story. Because what it tells us is, you can't cover yourself. You cannot deal with your biggest problem facing you today. You cannot cover your shame. Try as you might. You cannot deal with your guilt. It will never work. God has to do it. And here, God gives them garments of skin and he clothes them. Now, how does God's covering give us a clue here that actually can bring about radical change in your life? Well, if you look at verse 15, here in the midst of his pronouncement of judgment on the serpent, he says, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Now, perhaps that's a familiar verse to you, but what I want you to see is the clue here to what God will do in verse 15 is the seed of the woman, the offspring of the woman. And here, this offspring is described as an individual who will come as a champion on behalf of men and women who cannot fight for themselves he will bruise the head of the serpent. And the, but the serpent will bruise his heel. In other words, this champion will come and he will defeat the serpent. But at great cost, he won't survive it. One, one writer puts it like this, that Genesis 3.15 is a promise of a personal redeemer who will undo the trouble that Adam and Eve brought us all into by acting as a champion, not for himself, but for the sake of the human race. And if we were to look at Luke chapter 3, Jesus' genealogy there, that genealogy ends, Jesus' genealogy, with the son of Adam, the son of God. Jesus is the seed, the offspring of Adam, the seed of the woman, who by his life, he comes to undo what Adam and Eve got wrong. That's why we read from Matthew chapter 4 in Jesus' temptation. When Satan shows up to tempt Jesus, what does he do? Did you notice he quotes the Bible to Jesus? It is almost identical to, so did God really say this is how things go? And what Jesus responds with is not his own insight but with God's word. He says, no, that is not what God said. This is what God says. I will not give in to your, your manipulation, your shrewdness, your craftiness. He undoes what we get wrong. 
with his life, but he also absorbs the judgment in his death. He takes upon himself our shame as if it was his own. So that we can also read that now through faith in him, we can have peace with God. That to be in Christ means that there is no condemnation. The judgment and the guilt and the shame that we still experience coming from this passage is not the end of the story. It's not who you really are if you are in Christ. The cross of Jesus takes our shame and our dishonor And in its place, Jesus freely gives his righteousness and his honor. He clothes us with himself. He gives us his righteousness, his identity, his honor and dignity. And in fact, at the very end of the Bible, the very last chapter, what we discover is Jesus reopens access to the tree of life. That what we were cut off from From God, from Genesis chapter 3, he reverses it. The tree of life. Jesus opens the way back. And what that tells us is the seed of the woman, Jesus, has come to roll back God's curse as far as it is found. As far as the curse is found, Jesus rolls it back. And that is true for you and your life if you are in him. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we give you thanks for this passage and the story that gives such voice to our own experience, which is tragic, and yet gives good news and hope that our experience and our shame and our guilt are not the end of the story, that there is good news, that there is a champion who has come to make everything new, and to transform us from the inside out, that you might work in us to flourish, to love you, and to love our neighbors. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.